welcome to Storytelling. Welcome to part two of Speaking of Culture, The Conversation, with special guests Claudette Douglas, Harris Janney and Deli Ogan. We speak in English, conversing English because it's a common language, but uh, I speak Gujarati, I speak Hindi. And you know what? I've managed to retain some of my Swahili as well mm-hmm. from uh, my Ugandan days. Quite often when Ugandans, Asians get together, we quite often converse in Swahili, you know, I mean, we can converse in Gujarati or Hindi anywhere, but we quite often fall back on Swahili simply because it's something that makes us remember of our East African roots as well. But human beings, as you, as you say, there is a, a common theme here that we can get quite angry, quite cross about the past if we're not careful. And if we carry that with us, kind of all the time, then I think we can become quite embittered, which I don't think is good for anyone. I mean, I think the awareness of what's happened in the past is very important. So there is a very good author called Satnam Sanghera, who writes for The Times, and he has written a book called The Empire Land. Actually calls it The Empire Land, because as, as I say, in India it never was called a colony, it was always called Empire. So I think there's also another one that is by a, a chap called Shashi Tharoor, and he has written about the, he's called it the Inglorious Empire. <laughs> so I think nobody has praised the wrong things that were happening, but what they have accepted is that this is what has happened. I think history is not there to embitter us, it's there to teach us. Yeah. And they often say, isn't it, that the history has been written by the victor. But the the wonderful thing about this time that we're in, and I believe it's a reset moment, I believe it's a divine reset moment, when what was hidden is coming to light. And therefore, I mean, my father was a Garveyite, so he brought me up, taking me to all these great houses. So I knew, he told me, where the money came from that built these houses. Now you can find the records and Google it. And um, they've done so many, what's his name? Professor David Aldegai, is it? That's done Mm. so many wonderful stuff. So, I mean, it's all there. But my dad as a Garveyite, somehow they knew this knowledge that, because the knowledge was just was there really, for those who could see it, that these great houses, this wonderful bucolic landscape was built by slavery. This is how this beautiful country, the Industrial Revolution was fueled. So it's not about making one bitter, but I teach children. I have children come from Nigeria, children come from the Caribbean, children go to those countries. And I love to take them. The first place I take them is Brixton, and they see the statue of Mr. Tate. Mm -hmm. And I let them know that this is Mr. Tate, and this is what he built with his sugar. And then they, I can take them to the Tate Library. But it's also important for them to understand this is where the money came. This is what they built with the money that they got. But isn't it amazing that Brixton, mm. so full of black people and the library was the first thing he built. And the way that history 
moves and shapes us and somehow we're all connected to each other and the history and yet still they're standing there at the statue, children visiting from all over the world looking at this man. So I think it's important to look at history, learn from history, don't be frightened of what we have to face because when we face our demons, we overcome them. And so it's not to make us bitter, but to make us better so that we don't make those mistakes again. I think that's what's important so that we don't hide the truth from ourselves or each other, because we have to be prepared to embrace what is truth. And as you said, Harry, not to be bitter about it, because that will hold you hostage. If we learn from it and heal from it and understand and are willing to pay the consequence. But I think why so much of this sort of fear is out there, particularly with the political climate that's there, what they call wokery and all this stuff, is that people are frightened because if they say what the truth is, they'd have to pay reparations. It goes back to the money that Delhi was talking about. Follow the money and follow the mentality because it's that mentality that the West was seeking to expand their empire with the papal bulls and the Pope said, you can go here to Portugal, you can go there and take what you can, colonize them and get whatever you can. Yeah. So... That's not to make us angry. That's to let us understand that there is that part of humanity that we have to challenge that greed. We have to challenge that avarice. We have to challenge that just as we're talking about the climate and everything else now. Hoarding even COVID vaccinations in this time where the rich are hoarding it from the poorer countries. That mentality is still there. That is why this is so important, not necessarily just because of what happened in slavery, but because that mentality is still in power at this point. And I feel it's about dismantling that mentality within us personally and collectively, why this conversation is important that we have to keep talking. Can I endorse what Claudette has said? Uh, We must be careful when we say history is in the past. It isn't. It is very much in our present because we're all born in the, what, 1960s or thereabouts, and the story starts from our birth. When we were were born, (laughs) we all seek to now learn about our world. Mm -hmm. And what we learn about our world, what we're taught about the past, shapes our presence, our perspective, our outlook on the present. So going back to the statues that Harry touched upon, earlier and the most famous one of course as a result of the George Floyd one was the Edward Coulson statue in Bristol. Before the George Floyd crisis many people walking looking at that statue would have looked at it with admiration. It is only by virtue of the events that happened that people were then exposed to the history, the story, the real story of how this son of Bristol had been so charitable ways. It's easy to be charitable when you've got loads of money. If you make your money through an evil or wicked process, the way the world looks at you changes. So if the conventional narrative has shut out the real explanation of how the wealth was accumulated, then it's easy for children of this generation to look on Statues like that with admiration said, there stands a good man, a good citizen who sponsored so many good causes. So I agree with Claudette. It's not about 
bitterness. It is about getting the full picture. And when you get that full picture, it humbles, you see, it humbles people. Racism is born out of arrogance. The narrative that we, Great Britain, happened and the empire was so great because our people were so hardworking, industrious and creative and all the rest of that. Now, that yes, they were hardworking, creative and all the rest of that. But you've then got to bring the whole story in to say, why were they more hardworking? Where did the opportunity come from? And that's what takes you back into the real story. I mean, it's not, it's not somebody's putting this in there. It's just the story that's been left out of the narrative. And it goes back to Claudette's point when she asked me, why is it important for us to revisit the narrative? It is because human beings deserve the full story. Not a one-sided version, but the whole picture. Because when we get the whole picture, I think there'll be a lot more humility out there and much more respect between people of different races. I totally agree that being aware of the past is very important. And the past should be remembered as it was. And it shouldn't be camouflaged in any way. It should be told as it is. I'm totally in agreement with that. Where I differ, really, is the way in which we tackle that. If I think, as you say, if, if it's done with humility, if it's done with reason, and it's done with language that is not exactly conciliatory, but a language that is modest, then I think there is a better chance of it being understood and taken on board, is my view. Can I share a reading from... My autobiography, which I think is relevant to our discussion, yes. uh, titled The Law, The Lawyers and The Lawless. This is the beginning. On a date now forgotten in November 1969, Master Akindele Ugentimoju, then age seven, was put on board a British Overseas Airways Corporation flight that was departing Lagos for London at 0945 hours. He was headed for the English bar, though he did not know it. My father, Emmanuel Akinlade Ogentimuju, whom I knew not, since he had left for England three months after my arrival in this world on 9th of February 1962, had made the decision from his home in Highbury, Islington. Between him and my mother, Regina Aiyomi Ogentimuju, whom I remembered not, since she had left to join her husband when I was age one and three quarters, the plans had been made. A year previously, my father had directed that I be sent to Lagos from our village so that I could start learning English. Although Britain had granted Nigeria independence on 1st of October 1960, a year or so before my birth, the schools in the then capital city, Lagos, still observed the best of colonial traditions by requiring us children to make the transition out of the vernacular language in which we were then thinking to the English language in order to receive our education. Liberal lashes of the cane awaited those who made a mistake of defaulting to their mother tongue. At this stage of my life, I knew nothing but my mother tongue, Yoruba, which I spoke in the Ikale dialect. 
As a Cornishman's English is to the ears of a Londoner, so my Yoruba was to the people of Lagos. You see, although I'd been born in Lagos, I had on my mother's departure been taken back to my father's village to live with my grandmother. There, we had no need for another man's language to understand ourselves. Aide, literal meaning life is here, in the Oshoro district of Ikaliland, is a small village that sits on a plateau deep in the rainforest on the southwest coast of Nigeria. My grandfather, Samuel Ogentimuju, had been a man of standing, at least by the generally low standards of the area. You could gauge this from the fact that the two-story building, which was his house, competed with St. Andrew's Anglican Church as the tallest building in the village. Mm-hmm. Not that any of the villagers had a clue as to who this St. Andrew was, especially as in moments of real extremis, it was to Ogun, the Yoruba god of justice and war, that they still turned. The outhouses that stood immediately behind my grandfather's house were occupied by his several wives, of which my grandmother was one. Here then was a place where the lawyer, who was later to be called to the English bar, before becoming a corporate tax lawyer in the city, and the first black lawyer to found and lead a commercial law firm in England, spent his formative years. Only that at this stage, He did not think of himself as black, much in the same way as his counterparts growing up in rural England did not think of themselves as white. Each was growing up in his own environment, and so there was no basis for comparison. Yes, of course, we teased the children in the village who had lighter pigmentation by calling them Uyibo, one whose face has been peeled by the wind, the nickname that adults use for white people but none of us understood the true import of the word, as we had never seen a white person. There's a little reading, and the law, the lawyers, and the lawless. One of the issues that I came across in the course of my research was a decision that they made in India, in actual fact, and they made this decision around the late 1890 to change education policy. Because what had happened was this, when India was first colonized, and it was a colony, when it was was just a very big one, but it was a colony. When it was first colonized, they sat down and deliberated amongst themselves as to which language should they teach the Indian people in. Because at that time, in the 1830s, the language of education was Persian. But a conscious decision was made that henceforth the indigents of India would be educated in the English language. Obviously, the calculation was to spread the reach of the English language, thinking about the books and etc. that would spin off from that. But by the time they got to the 1870s, 1880s, they realized that they created a problem for themselves because the people of Bengal in particular took to Western education. So India was suspended largely. Bear in mind, India at this time included what is now Pakistan and Bangladesh. So India was largely suspended on two major faiths, Hindu and Islam. And it was the Hindus that took to Western education in the English language. 
But that had a result of radicalizing them because they were then able to read the books of philosophy and Western literature that were opening up thoughts and minds. This is the age of the Enlightenment, etc. And so the Hindus were getting enlightened. And an enlightened mind is difficult to colonize. This was the source of the early agitation for independence. So it was the 1900 that the new viceroy of India, I've forgotten his name for a moment, uh, a decision was made that henceforth they're going to revert back to teaching the Indians in the vernacular, no longer in English. And the nature of the education was going to change as well and focus much more on skills, tailoring and carpentry and work as a blacksmith, etc., rather than the liberal arts. And that lesson was carried over to Nigeria as well. That's why in Nigeria, you have two very different educational experiences. In the north of Nigeria, it was very much modelled on the later Indian experience, where it's education in the vernacular, the Hausa language, and the focus on skills rather than liberal arts. Whereas southern Nigeria, the damage had already been done. What the early Indian experience, where there was education in the English language and a focus on academia, etc., the horse had already bolted. And so that's why you have that very different experiences as far as Nigeria is concerned educationally. Mm-hmm. Language, I'm just thinking about that language. Caribbean, obviously, we have the Creole language. But just as you're saying about the, the school, when I was growing up at school in Jamaica, you weren't supposed to speak Patwa in the classroom because you have to write in English. I remember teachers would tell the students that your exams, we do GCSE English exams. Although I was one of the first cohort when they started doing CXEs, which are the standard now, which are Caribbean Exam Council which is also very important because it was also about the Caribbean coming of age and not needing necessarily when we have a quite a much higher standard of education in the Caribbean than in the average English school because, of course, they were based on Eton or, or public schools. The premium for education is just so much more high because education is one of the ways that people with little other options can change their lives, hence those different youth exchange and different things I was involved in. One of the things you were talking there, Dalian, it reminded me 10 years ago, I think it was, that Jamaica, because when I was going to school, English was the first language, then Jamaican, then Spanish, because I learned Spanish at school in Jamaica as well. But now Jamaican is the first language and English is the second. And that's been part of the evolution of identity. And also the Patwa Bible was published 10 years ago. And the Patwa Bible took a long time, almost 20, nearly 30 years of real academic research because it's 14 parishes in Jamaica with 14 different dialects. And all of them can be traced back, whether to Cornish roots and all sorts of stuff. So even some of the young people who came to stay with me were doing um, some work at the university on the linguistics. So this was a massive enterprise. And I think what was important for Jamaica particularly was any nation that has to see itself has got to be able to see itself reflected in God and through God. And the way the Bible had been used and misused throughout slavery, we know. But having a Patwa Bible was also a sense of a nation who was now feeling more comfortable with itself. And I think that also is important. So the way language is used and, and understood, but of course, English 
is a wonderful tool and they found the problems as well with the slaves because then they didn't want the slaves to learn to read. But many of the famous heroes of Jamaica learned to read. Sam Sharp learned to read the Bible. And when they read certain things, take to the hills and that, and they realized that these people had been lying to them. So language and how it's used and who has the power over it and how we use it is still an ongoing debate, really, isn't it? That's why I think rap and all these different forms of expression are so important, because how we've been able to use language, the slaves were able to use language and to use the Creole to speak in a different way so that the slave masters couldn't understand. So for Jamaicans, Jamaican is very much a language of resilience, rebellion, resistance, rebirth. All of those things are within a language that has come out of something else. So the language keeps evolving just as our history evolves, I think, and our understanding of who we are evolves. There's part of Jamaica, that the Republic of the Maroons. And again, I needed to live in Jamaica to understand this, that the Maroons defeated the English when they were outnumbered, is it 10,000 to one or whatever it was? And the, the English had to hand over that part of Jamaica to the Maroons, who were the runaway slaves. And these slaves could only really communicate in spirit because they all spoke different languages. So understanding history, the spirituality, rebellion, God, language, all of those things are what Jamaica taught me. All of those things are in all of us. And so I think somehow when we find our own symphony, we have within ourselves, and we've all written books, which is wonderful, but to find that synergy within ourselves and our language, our past, as Harish said, he goes back to Swahili when he's with his mates. And we go back to what is important to us, what is embedded in us. All of those things, we have to flesh them out within ourselves to be decent to each other, to be polite, to try and learn from each other amongst these big questions of us floating around in the solar system. So I think when you look at all of those things, we need balance in our lives just to process the dichotomy of who we are and where we are much less understand where we've come from and how we got here. I think we need to pay attention to these things so we don't miss what it is to be human. I have a question for all of you. Why do you think it's easier to have this discussion right now? And why is it important to have this discussion right now? I don't know that it is easier than it's ever been, but I think it's necessary. And I think we've all been given this moment. One thing I know that we all understand, everybody here together, I think we all understand that the moments that we have are precious. And I believe that we all believe that, as Harry said, he wrote that book because he's leaving something of a legacy. So we all believe that we have a legacy and we're living legacy in, in a sense. So I think we have to have this conversation because what a moment to be able to learn from each other and to, to be strengthened just by broadening our understanding and, and having this discussion. To me, it's vitally important. I think it's easier to have the discussion now because history is never static. New information and new evidence becomes available because of the information systems, the developments in technology. There's so much self-education going on. So it doesn't really matter what they're teaching on the official curriculum. People are accessing knowledge independently. And that's why it is so much easier 
for people to have a debate. Because if you have no new knowledge, there's nothing really to discuss. What provokes the discussion is the seeping through of new information, new knowledge like never before. Now, with a Google search, you can find out the real story, or at least something closer to the real story, the bits that was left off the curriculum. So I think that's why it is easier for us to have the conversation. But the reason why it is important for us to have the conversation is this. It is all about better understanding. Race relations are poor when understanding, mutual understanding is poor. So if you just get the one version of events that has shaped people's attitudes, the attitude or the narrative of supermen and lesser men or superwomen and lesser women, then that is what feeds intolerance and disrespect of others. But once you have this kind of open discussion, taken on board the new learning that's available, then the historical disequilibrium is then rebalanced. And with that rebalancing, you get a greater level of respect. You drop the Superman narrative and you move closer to we are all human beings with potential, with abilities to contribute. We've still got a long way to go because if you look at different parts of the world and you see the state of underdevelopment and the narrative that has historically been pushed is that those countries are the way they are because their people are just somehow lesser people, defective. But when you get the real historical explanation, and it can be awkward and uncomfortable, but when you get the real historical explanation and get the truth out as to why those countries are still in the condition that they are, because this imperial and colonial experience really hasn't ended, the grant of independence is not the same as the winning of independence. So Harry told us earlier that Uganda was granted independence in 1962. Nigeria was granted independence in 1960. But when you grant independence to a peoples, you, the grantor, set in the framework, very different from when you win independence. America won independence, and that's why America is the way it is. It wasn't granted independence. So when people understand that history is still with us, it's not over. It is every day, it's legacy is still being felt right across the world. The discussions to change the narrative is necessary in order for us to improve race relations. I think having an open discussion is a good thing. And it's a good thing that people have slightly different perspectives, different point of view. And what one person considers to be important is not always going to be important for somebody. It's meeting of minds quite often. And I think that the narrative that Delhi is talking about, about the colonialism, I think the colonialism is something that is subjugating people, is to taking advantage of people. Now, if you look at the world as it is, in some respects, the kind of dictatorships that we see elsewhere in the world, these leaders who are given the power after independence, have created something that is not so good for 
the people of the country. So the problem has quite often been the reverse in an awful lot of places. And as Delhi knows, the Biafra war that kind of divided Nigeria was something that was quite horrendous. There are issues with other parts of Africa. South Africa has recently gone through quite a turmoil. And the ANC, Nelson Mandela, would turn in his grave if he found out what was happening. So I think we have to not just kind of blame colonialism as it was. Yes, I mean, it was a nasty thing. But look at things as they're happening now. Look at things as a different point of view. And yes, by all means, say loudly and clearly that what went on in the past was wrong. But let's look at things that are happening now and see how we can make the world a better place by having a different kind of perspective on it. So at different stages in your life, you want to do something that is different, either through choice or circumstances forcing you. You look forward to new challenges. Remember what you have done and then begin to contemplate why and how it all started. When I reached the age of 70 at the beginning of March 2020, I felt liberated in a rather odd sort of way. I had quality time on my hand, and with lockdown forced upon us with coronavirus threat, I wanted to use my energy and thought processes in a positive way. Of course, we go through different cycles and decades, but somehow when you reach the age of 70, you begin to feel that you should really own up to the fact that you only have a limited years ahead of you. You are also very grateful that God has been kind to you by giving you a fairly longish life and a successful life up to now. You would have had so many highs and lows in your life. It is time to change your priorities and the way you think and look forward to life in general. One of my burning desires was to write my life story. The logic and purpose behind thinking was to really let the future generations know about the family history and their lineage. I'll endeavor to cover my emotional and spiritual aspects of life as well. I'll be describing the factual events and what influences they had on my life stages so far so that the context of the events is understood. In writing such an account of my life, we'll naturally have some historical references. And if they do any injustice to any of the names in this chapter, then please try to understand that's my personal point of view, and in no way have I saw them at the time. There is a basic underlying philosophy which has been my trusted pillar in everything that I've done in my lifetime. I've changed my opinions and behavior about some of the matters as I've learned and reflected on the challenges. In doing as I will, enlist the help of the family and friends to ensure that I do not stray too far away from the app. My story, which I'll cover in some depth in the following chapters, in some way has been quite successful by normal standards. My life had been due to the bedrock of very good education and incredibly happy surroundings and quite a decent professional career that followed. So, I mean, I've, I've got another sort of couple of pages and I won't read them, but it goes on similar lines as what I've just said. I think then there are lots and lots of different chapters covering different parts of the journey. But that is my kind of preface, just an introduction, really. Thank you. Thank you, Harris. I'm going to end the conversation here by saying, let's continue to have the conversation because the conversation will never end. There's lots to learn from 
all our experiences. The debate and the discussion will continue and the narrative will always change. As Daddy has mentioned, history is always evolving. It's always moving. Yeah. And we have all done things to leave legacies for our families so that they can continue this journey of learning and of having an experience which is more beneficial for them and their children going forward. So let's continue the discussion. Harry, Delhi, and Claudette, thank you all so much for your time in this podcast episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the experience. If you would like to revisit the previous episodes of the featured guests, then please listen again to Season 2, Episode 7 for Harry, Season 2, Episode 15 for Claudette, and Season 3, Episode 5 for Delhi. The links of these episodes are also in the show notes.